designers are on a, a journey, like a personal journey themselves in, in life and, and in work, and that we're never always going to get it right. And if we start packaging this up and framing things as though we know everything or um, being dogmatic, I just think you lose people. That's um, that's that's the exact dichotomy with promoting yourself as a designer. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, that's right. the exact thing, the kind of thing I wanted to get to later on, but that's exactly it. It's you, you get to the point where you get too good at promoting yourself and then you look too polished and you look too good and then you turn some people off. Also, you also turn turn some people on, which I guess is not a bad thing, but you know what I mean. Uh <laughs> Hi, I'm Craig Burgess. I'm co-owner and creative director of Genius Division based in Barnsley in the UK. Hi, I'm Richard Baird, founder and editor of BP&O. But, yeah, that's that's the thing I actually found last year. So I, I definitely want you to talk about what you're doing because you, in terms of promotion, you're somewhere, like, right up here and I'm somewhere right down here. So what you're doing, you on on the outside anyway, you you figured all the promotion stuff out, whereas... Well, for, we're going to have a real conversation about that. <laughs> the, whereas the, me, the, I haven't. And I, I actually started to mess with stuff last year. Uh, was it last year now? No, it was about a year and a half ago. I started messing with, with stuff. So I started doing Twitter, and I started... Um, doing a website and I also wrote a book and oh, what's the book called it's called extreme production so it's basically how, how I do loads of stuff is that um uh self-published or do you have a publisher is it book form is it no it's, a, it's an ebook <laughs> yeah so it's so it's an ebook and I and I went down all this route of promoting the extreme production stuff and promoting kind of because aside from being a designer, I'm really interested in uh, self-improvement and, you know, just getting better and stuff like that. And I went down this route of talking so much about this stuff that I wasn't really talking about design ever at all. And I started kind of seeing seeing it resonate with some people and I didn't like it because it wasn't what I was. And at that mean- point... Particular groups of people um, that that you didn't necessarily feel like you had a uh, a connection with, but we responded to what you were doing, and that it would set you down a particular path that you yourself weren't really interested in. I I was interested in it, and I still am. So I'm still interested in self improvement and stuff like that. But I didn't want to become like a a self improvement guru type thing because. I'm still into design and I got stuck into this. This is where I first started messing with promotion. I started promoting myself as kind of this self-improvement guy and suddenly it started working to a point and I just backed off from it straight away. So I think that's... What was your channels for delivering um, your experience? Was it, it was the ebook? What what else were you doing? So I was um, blogging on a website I had an email newsletter that I wrote every day. I had a podcast, which I've still got. And I had, um, and Twitter, I was just using Twitter as well. 
and the things I, I mostly talked about was self-improvement and all that kind of thing. I never spoke about design or marketing. That was kind of the reason I, I didn't ever speak about that stuff is because, and even from the very beginning, I said this was kind of a test, a marketing test to actually try out all these techniques that I've seen. And when they started working, I didn't like it. And I just backed off <laughs> and stopped but doing it. I don't, I don't think that, that these, they're not exclusive, right? That, um, the the problem is that when when you package things up that you need a, a clear demographic to speak to um you be, need to be able to say in a, in a single line what it is that you are what the, what is the proposition and that the sort of market economy says well you need to package this up productize it know which group of people but if you say well I'm, I'm really interested in this sort of self-improvement aspect. I'm really interested in the design industry. That as soon as you put them together, you have uh, an untested um, mix of, of of what you like a, a proposition of like uh, design to self-improvement or whatever like that. Um, it becomes like a higher risk thing because the, there aren't the channels for that particular niche. Um, so you get you either end up with a design podcast or a self-improvement podcast. But I think these things are deeply interrelated. The, um, I think it, it might be Karl Marx. Um, I, I read so many different things, so I get confused about where these originally come from, which is terrible. But um, a person finds himself in production. So um, he would obviously was talking about um, a manual labor. Uh, but if you sort of extrapolate that today, it might be... Uh, in, in the production of material or product or a digital product or um, collaborative endeavors, services, all these kind of things that I think if you move through different um, areas of design practice, you, you challenge yourself in new ways and you will find yourself. Um, but if you only ever do one sort of set of things that um, if, if you never feel a pain, a difficulty, uh, if you never feel affronted or offended, uh, challenged by ideas or uh, principles or practices or um, production difficulties, that you will never uh, be reshaped by them and, and, and grow, right? So I think they're, they're intrinsically linked. It's just that when it comes to creating a productized version, so what you were doing was um, personal development products, that it just, it's easier to to choose one instead of bring them together. But I think that, that that conversation about designers having a very uh, opportune or um, th there's that in design practice, we have a unique opportunity to learn from lots of different people, clients, for example, across lots of different industries. That's quite rare. Um, I think in, in, um, in, in, an, in a job in an industry to have that kind of interaction with so many different um, groups of people. And it's amazing as well. That is one of the best bits of the job, you know, working with someone uh, in an industry you've never worked with and just meeting them for the first time and saying, so how do you, how do you actually make this thing? And then they just give you this amazing answer. That's, that's one of the things, because the thing that they often say about promoting yourself as a designer is about niching down into a specific industry isn't it so you you become known to be a designer i mean the hot one right now is becoming a designer in cannabis industry because it's booming 
So people say you should niche down into cannabis industry or you should niche down into only making design for sports teams or whatever. But I, I, I often find that when you do that, you lose a lot of the bit that I love about design, which is working with loads of different industries. Absolutely. And the cannabis industry is a good a good space because the visual language has been so it's subcultural, right, that it's very um, specific and small. And now it's exploded. And what you people are doing is they're trying to find ways of communicating um, the benefits of something that was um, illegal. And it doesn't necessarily have a, a related visual language that uh, is mainstream, right? So you you know when you go into these shops and you see the pack packaging for for um, uh, the, the associated paraphernalia, it, it, it would draw on, say, uh, subcultures. Um, but now it's kind of folded into like a, a, a different group of people and their expectations are quite different and... So I think designers are drawn to it because there's a lot of freedom with that. Whereas if, for instance, uh, you work in architecture uh, a lot, as I do, is there is a lot of established visual language there that you need to draw on and you drop in your 10% that's different and hope that it drives their business slightly further forward in terms of um, communication and, and whatever, um, which I, I really like, right? just doing that 10% different and 90% is within the visual language of what's already established. So. And I like, yeah, that's, I like really working in an industry that people think's boring as well. There's nothing better for me finding something interesting about something boring because there's always interesting stuff in everything. But I think they're the most challenging jobs when you're trying to visualize something that people say is boring in quote marks working for I, I can't think of an example but you know what I mean something in manufacturing or things like that that's traditionally it's visual language is very dull but working in that space and trying to make it interesting is a really cool challenge I think I think to bring it back to promotion and you talked about um, you, you can get known for being a specialist in a particular industry so um, if you're working and I just keep on going back to architecture because that's what I'm most familiar with and you're putting out bits and pieces of work for architects and then another architect is looking for uh, an identity they're going to use the uh, they're going to use google and they're going to use pinterest these are governed by algorithms and that say your words again Say your words again. Algorithmic <laughs> governance. <laughs> Algorithmic governance, which is shaped by the, uh, the 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 trading of information between different different companies, not individuals. So uh, they make money off of uh, trading on your information. That uh, they're not really. They want to give people uh, exactly what they want and not challenge them. So I my work tagged up with architecture will be served to architects looking for branding. Um, the, the chances of me being discovered outside of that without the work associated with other industries uh, becomes uh, nominal. Um, it's more like a, it's like um, evolution where there is a mistake where we talked about the Dubai client I had accidentally finding uh, a pin that I posted that wasn't my work 
wasn't in my field of expertise, but then getting employed in uh, law, working in, in, in the field of uh, um, corporate law. That's uh, one of those sort of environmental mistakes where the algorithm shouldn't necessarily have served me up to this client. Um, it was an accident. And now I, I have a, a law firm, whereas really I should just be getting architecture clients, which I continue to do. Um, the self-promotion thing is where you, you construct a net, a very, very big net with a very, very fine mesh. Um, and this is what I do across social media, across multiple projects where your aim is just to try and catch lots of different fish from which you can choose what you want to do. It's across a multitude of industries. Um, and then, and then you sort of accumulate different experiences and cross pollinate those between industries or whatever. So do you, you mentioned architecture, do you actively look for more architecture clients then? Would you say that you specialize in that? No, um, my approach to promotion has never been um, around me. I've never promoted myself. I've never had a marketing program. I've never really put much time into my own website. Um, I've never had a portfolio. Um, I've never done marketing outreach. So it's quite different from I, I had in the past, you know, how do you get more clients and done all of that. But when, when I was reading through it, it just felt so dull to me, um, uninteresting, formulaic. Um, and, and the thing is that it just gets repopulated across multiple blogs. So you get the top 10 ways of um, finding new clients and this kind of thing. And they all say the same thing. And it's always framed within the, within the agenda of um, getting more clicks, right? So listicles. Um, catchy headlines and titles and I don't know why I've accumulated a bit of a sensitivity to this kind of click baity top 10 thing because you're a designer That's yeah why. because I, I don't there's... I don't like to be engineered or taken advantage of I, I just want the design press to, to to tell me something new that comes from their experience instead of taking what they've read elsewhere and reformatting it to suit their blog because there's such a this fast content culture where in order to survive as a blog with ad revenue that you just need to keep on pumping things out and they do of course write pieces that come from their, their own uh, experience but that's in between doing the things that they know are going to drive is like the top 10 logo tips article, right? You just have to keep going there to keep driving that traffic because Google basically assigns time value to your content. So what they call like this, is it evergreen content or is yeah. it tied to a particular time and you get buried? So you um, update that article over and over again, or you take that content and you republish it with new pictures and whatever. Um, so going back to the marketing thing, it just never felt like I was getting anything substantial and that I would need to find my own way through it. Um, and BP, you know, is a good example um, that I'd seen other blogs and what they were doing was just reconfiguring press releases of design studios. So I would go to one website and I would see a piece of work by, say, Collins or Pentagram, and I would read it and I was because I would, I myself would 
would get a press release, right? And I would read through the pentagram and I, I would know what pentagram had written and then I could see it on the website and I could see how it was restructured on uh, website one, website two, website three. And it, they would essentially just reconfigure it in their own ways. Um, and I just, I could see the way that the, the, the work would saturate itself so quickly. And this notion of um, credibility just went out the window. There was no one saying, I believe in this work and this is why I believe in this work and why I believe that I want to spend an hour or so writing about it and sharing it with people. It was like, it's pentagram. Uh, people like pentagram or even people just generally dislike pentagram for whatever reason. It's a kind of a hot topic. Um, it's like, check out the new pentagram work. But I never understood why they chose to publish pentagram aside from being part of that uh, transaction of um, I'm promoting Pentagram uh, because I will get ad revenue and clicks uh, and Pentagram benefits because um, it raises, continues to sustain or their profile is already huge, right? So there's that kind of quick pro quo where there's no demand in which to spend any more than an hour reconfiguring a press release. Now, when I started BPNO, I was like not prepared to do what everybody else is doing. And this is my own personal struggle. And we can go and talk on it more about it where I've just not made enough money doing these things. But it was because inside I said to myself, I just simply can't do that. It, it doesn't seem like I'm driving the conversation forward, even if people disagree with me. You just need to add that um, an opinion element or design becomes that Ouroboros where it's not being fed. It's just consuming itself again and again. So I would end up, you know, spending four hours trying to understand the project, researching the project, um, building up an opinion. And sometimes I would, I would really like a work to begin with and I read about it a bit further. And then I would see that to me, this doesn't have, as much depth as I would have hoped for because it, it was beautifully crafted. And I would actually write myself into a hole where I couldn't publish it because I didn't believe in it anymore. Or I would take a leap of faith where I would start writing about something that perhaps it wasn't as crafted in the way I would be particularly interested in or the aesthetic wasn't, uh, didn't speak to me but may have spoke, spoke to a, another group. And I was prepared to just dive in for an hour or two, start researching, start writing. By the end of it, after four hours, and this is between 6.30 in the morning till I would publish at 11.15, I would be completely in love with the project. And I would, I would be so excited to hit the publish button um, because I'd spent the time to try and understand it. And that's essential to what BPNO was. And, you know, the worst thing would be is when you hit the publish button, and like a hundred people read it in the day and you think, and no one shares it. And, and you just spent four hours trying to sort of uh, explore it and say, can you see how amazing and beautiful this is? It's just because when people go through the article and they, they look over the images, that the images just don't jump out because it's, it's not like seductive or it's not shot in a way that, that is pin, pinnable or Instagrammable, um, that it requires that kind of investment in time. And I think that nowadays it's also worth bearing in mind that when you're promoting yourself, 
um, when you're using Instagram and Pinterest and if you decide to do blogging is that you're not competing with other design sites. You're basically competing with every content provider for a finite amount of time in the day. Is your proposition strong enough to sit against the Guardian? Um, is someone going to go and look at your website um, because they know you publish it at 11.15 every day and they just have to see what you've got to say about something? Um, are you kind of changing as you're or publishing? Um, and that's a, another thing we could talk about. But I think promoting yourself, I think you touched on it a little bit as well, and there's one reason why I like BPNO over a lot of the other uh, design sites is that you can tell that you've taken time to actually understand the work and there's this thing often in design that particularly on design magazine type websites they think oh well designers don't read and they don't appreciate it so the words are the afterthought and the images are the forethought whereas I, th I think there's an element with some of the stuff where you can tell that the words have been thought about sometimes more than the images which I think sets it apart and I think that links quite strongly to promotion stuff whereas we kind of we think we want to promote our work and we've got to promote it in the same way as everybody else has done we've got to make the same Instagram posts we've got to make the same tweets we've got to make the same Beyonce profiles but the truth is that if you want to stand out you can't repeat the same shit that everybody else is doing you've got to figure out a way to cut through the noise and when you first start doing something Nobody might be reacting to it, but if you're loving it and you enjoy doing it, eventually, if you keep doing it with consistency, people, you will start to find an audience for it and people so will, will start to my, become known for what you are doing. My, uh, my understanding of it is that the, the problem with what you're describing, the, the Behance things and that, um, is that you're always showing results. And yes, indeed, people, some people will buy services looking at the results. But I found that uh, in terms of growing um, clients or uh, getting bigger clients is that they're not necessarily wanting to buy into what you've done, but who you are. So who is this person? What do they stand for? How deeply do they understand um, their, their, their practice? How willing are they to go a bit further to understand my business? Do, do they speak the same language? Or am I, I, as a client, going to learn something from this process? Can I trust this person? Um, how passionate is this person? How far are they willing to go? That can never really be communicated in a Behance profile. And that, that is actually the hardest thing to do because designers, from my experience, don't know how to write about themselves. Um, they will hide behind well-polished images. Um, this is sort of the market of mock-ups, that this faux realism of, um, I did this pretend project and now I've <laughs> uh, used a mock-up so that it, it gives it credibility. Um, uh, the, the case studies are basically a couple of, couple of lines of industry X, they needed a new logo, that kind of thing. And also with case studies, um, that when I've 
sometimes I've written case studies for design studios, which gives you a bit of insight into their thinking. And there's a design studio and their work is incredibly beautifully crafted. It does exceptionally well on blogs. I know when I publish work that it gets a lot of traffic, a lot of clicks. Um, and whenever I've taken the time to write about it and research it, I thought, yep, this is, this is really thoughtful stuff. And it's a synergy of design craft design thinking or strategy however i went in to meet them to talk about doing a i think it was a strategy document they needed to help reword it for a client before they presented it and you would not believe the depth of thought that went into this strategy document and it really the end result the way they photograph it the way that they sort of drip it into the stream of Instagram, the work in progress shots actually really belie the depth of thought that had gone into the work. And that's the sort of tension, right, is that Instagram and Pinterest necessitate and put forward design craft over strategic thinking. And that falls into promotional and creative and creative thinking too. And when I mean creative thinking, I don't mean visuals. I mean, um, the actual idea behind work, the visual element of the work is the most important thing ever, 100%. But the thought behind the work is the thing that never really gets communicated. Well, there is this argument that... um that you shouldn't have to read about it, that the idea should be simple. It's like the book Smile in the Mind really promotes this uh, visual humour, wit, that it... The, the idea should just immediately be communicated. But I would argue that indeed that it, that is um, one element. Uh, however, work with a sleight of hand or a nuance or an, a market idiosyncrasy. So in architecture, there are uh, things that we could talk about uh, like tempor- temporality or uh, volumes and voids things that are very specific to that group of people will be lost when you send it out into Instagram is that it might look visually nice or very reductive, but actually if you put that in front of architects, there is a meaning there that the general populace wouldn't get. And that's where Instagram and algorithmic governance actually fails graphic design is because the algorithms do not accommodate for that nuance. Um, what it does is it it responds to uh, the immediacy of the work or, or how people immediately respond to it. And if only 20 people click like, it will not send it out to many people. If 100 or 1,000 people click in the first five minutes, it's like, okay, I'm go- we're going to make some money from this. We can insert adverts or whatever. So things that are that are delicate that are specific to a to a market will not necessarily see as much reach or will not help shape um the, the industry in any way they won't give designers more uh, tools to work with um yeah something something i've found is uh not necessarily a shortcut to better promotion but certainly when I look at what everybody's producing, not just in the design industry, but marketing wider, you know, any kind of industry, the 
shortcut to getting your work understood on a deeper level because as we've just mentioned the difficulty with the designer is that the majority of our stuff is visual so the temptation to promote ourselves is to just talk about the visuals or not even talk about the visuals just promote the visual but the way to get people to understand and get better clients and to get people to get you on a deeper level is through the words but a lot of a lot of designers don't like writing or they don't value the words and the, the all the designers that I follow that I can think of I follow them on Twitter primarily I understand them deeper on Twitter from their words not from the visuals well there's a character that is intrinsic to Twitter there are people designers on Twitter that um I like their work but I just find them really compelling individuals and other people where I think that perhaps uh, that there isn't as much complexity um, or, or actually what's quite nice is sometimes you just find that people want to have a chat about anything that, yeah. that it's a very honest um, the, the interaction side is the bit that a lot of people forget I think as as designers when we're promoting ourselves the interaction side is is more important specifically as a young designer so I when I was teaching design, I got a lot of people asking me, I used to tell them all the time, go on Twitter, set up a Twitter account, start following designers, start following big designers, start following local designers, start talking to your local design studios to find jobs and things like that, get an understanding of the industry. And one of the first things I did when, the reason I always say it is because one of the first things I did when I was looking for a job, do you remember Delicious? <laughs> Delicious, the bookmarks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to use Delicious. They called it social bookmarks. It still exists, but nobody uses it now since Yahoo bought it. Uh, I, I used Delicious to find all of my local design agencies, and there was about 70 or 100 or something, and I put them all in a big bookmarks list, and I used to go on their website every couple of days and just look at what they were doing, find the blog posts or Twitter or, or whatever they was doing at the time. I don't... Did Twitter exist then? I think it did, but we weren't really using it. And I just used to keep up with locally what people were doing and try to keep in touch with them and try to just interact with these agencies on a human level, not promoting, not sending them CVs and things like that. Well, yeah, this is, I think this is so important. What you're just saying there is um, when, when you run uh, like an a Instagram account and it's 150,000, is that the people that are, I, I describe it as like a difference between visibility and invisibility, that if you don't have much reach, um, you assume that the people, that the, you want to get the attention of people with, with reach or visibility, but they forget that that person with reach and a lot of followers um, is getting a lot of people tagging them in stuff and it, it, it's, it's very mechanical because all they're doing is dropping in an at and they're not having a conversation with me. They're just saying, they're kind of waving their hand desperately as I look at my work. And I actually asked someone the other day, um, I see that you've tagged uh, Logo Archive. Um, are you looking for, uh, why, why did you tag me? Mm. Are you looking for some feedback? And all I got is, I don't know, I just did. And, you know, the shrugging shoulders emoji. And you think, I bet that's what's really going on there is 
that's what people think they need to do to get anywhere because the platform really is against them. There's so many people pushing out content uh, that they're mechanically tagging people rather than really getting involved with anything. And the other thing is with BPNO, the same thing, you get a lot of emails. I don't have a submit button purposely because I need some kind of filter to stop people um, just throwing stuff at the wall to see if it sticks. And sometimes I'll have a, I'll, I'll sometimes they get grumpy, right? And they'll say, please look at my work. I think you'll be a good fit. And you say, well, have you taken time to have a read through what it is that I tend to publish or how I talk about things? And do you think this is a, the right kind of fit? And that, oh, okay, I see that this isn't the right, the right kind of work. It's, it's not even in the right category. It might be advertising, uh, do corporate identity work. That There is this desire to just blitz everybody and everything rather than doing what you said is making those real connections where um, you, when you get in touch with someone, it's without an agenda. So... Um, and even if you want to fake it, please, by all means, just email me and say, I like what you're doing and, and um, you know, perhaps ask a question or a provocation or whatever. And learn your and, name. Yeah. And learn your name. And then in the second email, perhaps you say, maybe, can you have a look at your work? <laughs> uh, have a look at my work. And I'll, I'll probably respect that, right? You know, that they did that. But it's where you get this constant barrage of people just asking for things for themselves yeah. um, and not thinking about the, um, I have to remind myself that each person is an individual and that just because I've had 10 emails asking things from me, that that doesn't mean each one of those people is, um, that they, they're a collective with an intention of sucking my time. Yeah. Each one really might want to be seen a bit more. Um, and so just sort of doing what you said is just tempering your behavior a bit to think about um, like a real connection, as you said, that you genuinely find the work interesting. And of course, I have to outreach to design studios if I want some, some more information. And it's taken, I've been doing it sort of eight years and I now have this relationship with lots of different studios where I can um, that they don't, it's not too much trouble for them to give me a bit more information. But of course, they didn't know me in the beginning. And I had to think about how I was going to approach them and, and ask them. And sometimes it, it might take them an hour or two, or even uh, they will put a junior designer on it to produce some more images for a case study. Um, and, and that was so generous of them to do that, right? That I, I was just starting out. I had no BP, no, was nothing. But they would take the time to do that and they would answer questions because nobody was asking them those questions. Mm. They were just taking the press releases. So I think that's a good tip on self-promotion is building relationships with people that may promote your blog, uh, your work, or help you promote your work or... Um, offer you some kind of advice instead of just expecting uh, people to give you answers to your questionnaires or give you um, space on, on their Instagram account, of course. And Instagram, of course, has made it worse because the content is so fast mm. um, that there's, it's um, net benefit. It's better to quickly tag 50 people, 50 Insta blogs, than it is to sit down and type an email to one offline blog. It's 
it's, it's very hard because uh, it, it's time consuming, right? Yeah, I, I think I think you touched on something there that's important when you're trying to promote yourself is to try and when you're promoting yourself not to make it about you and make it about other people first so if you're looking at maybe creating side projects and I always recommend side projects especially to people who are just getting into the industry but I think we should be doing them all all throughout our career to be honest to continue growing as you said at the beginning we, we always need to keep growing and getting better or trying new things and exploring I think that's why when you're looking at doing side projects it should be something that benefits others or that you can pull other people into to kind of build those connections so as, as a young designer doing something like bpno for example where you're collecting other people's work uh, of, of of designers that you admire or whatever and actually trying to get in touch with them and, and saying i'd love to know a little bit more about this project because i i, I publish on my website uh, you know my thoughts on this work and things like that trying to find a kind of a selfish way uh, not selfish a selfless way of promoting other people is always a good way to kind of promote yourself i think the the writing aspect is is really important to me that um i would never be where i am now because i don't have a a, a degree in in graphic design that i had to sort of learn it from the ground up so um having written about design work over and over again over such a long time and having to research it and reading through whatever documents that were available is that uh, you begin to assimilate that information a lot quicker. So instead of, and we talked about it in the previous episode, this idea of passive consumption rather than active consumption where you're engaged in what you're seeing and you're trying to understand it a bit more. And that's the same with Logo Archive is that I'm breaking down these logos because I, I need to sort of research them. I need to produce these vectors of them um, that I'm understanding how difficult it is for them to be produced. And I'm loading my mind with techniques for generating logos rather than researching uh, architecture logos when I need to produce an architecture logo. But the downside is that when you're promoting yourself, mostly you're looking to other people to see how you might go about doing that. And as you just said, it's like taking BPNO and perhaps it's writing um, in your style about other people's work. And I don't think it's possible to almost sell that into people that are listening now that that's what you should do to promote yourself because I was just lucky that it was a particular time um, in I think it was 2011 that I started it, where very few people were writing reviews about work. So you had um, a creative review, and they're such a, a large cultural institution, and were writing about design and, and all, all associated creative industries in lots of different ways. There was a simplicity to BPO, and of course, it, that came off the back of brand new but I only really had brand new as a template and I knew I would never write like brand new because Armin's writing was so idiosyncratic, so much full of humor. Um, it, it was very much an expression of his worldview and his character and the way he saw corporate identity design that I never knew or I, I knew I would never be able to write like that. I don't have a humor uh, in that kind of way that I'm a bit cynical I need to understand things a bit in 
in my own way and write about it in my own way. So there was always a space for that. Now I'm not entirely sure if someone was to take BPNO and which is built on brand new and do a niche blog on corporate identity design with their own tone of voice that it would really work. It's just there is so much design content now that to build a, a, a profile up. Depends. Things like like Pinterest, I got lucky because I was on it in the first wave of invitations and I was one of the few designers so that whenever a new person signed up and they said they like design, that Pinterest would automatically load my boards into their profiles. And that's how I built up all of that following. It was just serendipity, right? Or yeah. first entry. It depends what you mean by working though, doesn't it? Because I think there's there's value to starting any of these projects, even if you think it's not going to take off. If you're doing it with such passion and such uh, zeal, it might end up taking off. But even if it doesn't, it's a thing that's inside your portfolio. For example, if 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 they're only a year into, if this designer, the fictional designer we're talking about, is only a year into their career, but on their website they've got a hundred reviews of corporate identities that sets them apart from everybody else doesn't it so they yeah, in terms yeah. of promotion they have made something and this is why i think the value of side projects is so important they've made something that goes above and beyond what other people will do whereas when you get a, a regular cv through through the door at an agency and i see this quite a lot you get a cv through the door well on email and it's just a one-page pdf with a PDF, another PDF attached with just work, with no explanation, and they don't even bother to find your name out, and you just bin it. But the the problem is that you're not, if if you're then asking the design agency to take a bit more time over your particular submission, so you might have a hundred views of of corporate identity work that you find interesting, but when uh, uh, people are looking through portfolios and having sat inside a studio for a while, seeing how they do it, that they they are quickly flicking through portfolios, looking for a general design sensitivity and then going deeper to read about the ideas or other, other ideas on the surface that catch the eye and draw you into reading more. That to you need to house that 100 reviews on your website and we're, we're being very specific about what yeah. we're talking here is that it's still so difficult to because you're asking the design studio for their time and they just mm. don't have it so the way i see it now is bpno has gone on for nine years logo archive has gone on for what 2015 so five years that i because I have two projects that did quite well, it's better than having one project that did quite well. Mm-hmm. That I would say to uh, young designers that it might be better to do, maybe it's a blog of corporate identity reviews, but you limit yourself to a year's worth and you do as many as you can. Mm-hmm. Then move on to another project and try something that is printed, but again, keep it contained. Don't lose too much money on it. Yeah. Um, and then and then do perhaps it's an instagram profile that is very very specific about a particular interest that nobody else has um and then trying to see how that goes for a year 
and I think you tweeted about it earlier, is this sort of slow but methodical um, approach. And you say that will win. I'm not very much interested in this sort of notion of winning or losing, but um, building up a portfolio of, of, of meaningful, thoughtful ideas that reveal something about yourself and just making sure that you're not that you're limiting your time, that you don't get lost in trying to make it work. Um, yeah. that, that's, and, you've just described the exact process I've followed for the last 13 years to promote myself. And we're still doing it right. This is why we're here, is yeah. it's another project. Yeah, exactly. The thing that that's always resonated with me because I, I struggle to stick at a project over a long period of time. I always have done. I might have, I, right now I've got three, 30 ideas back here somewhere but I, I can't bring them to fruition and I can't see them through. So the, the method that I found worked for me was the first year when I was working as a, as a designer and I spoke about it last time about um, doing lots of work because I, I worked for a, a design agency that were working to a price list. So I had to do a lot of work every single day. And that gave me the idea that I wanted, I wanted to improve my illustrator skills specifically, so my vector skills, because at the th at the time I I really admired um, a vector designer. I can't remember his name now, but I really loved his work, and I wanted to do that work. I wanted to know how to do that work. So my thought was, I'm going to make an A4 poster every single day for 365 days. That was the first project ever side project that I did, and. I managed to rope my boss into it as well, somehow, I don't know how. Uh, so we set up this kind of website, we called it Novel Cuisine, and I set up this website, and by the way, the name came from a domain that I had that I bought for another project. That's the only reason <laughs> it was called that. Um, so we set up this website where there was my poster at one side and his poster at the other, so it was kind of a design standoff every single day, uh, and we had comments on there as well, so people used to... All our friends used to come on and pile comments on and I used to get ripped to shreds most of the time. And I hated it. I hated the fact that people used to rip me to shreds. And I did that every day for 365 days. And by the end of it, my illustrator skills were fantastic and my idea generating skills were much better than they was. And I found that the 365 day thing worked for me in that particular instance. Do you, do you think that... Um the 365 day or a year project is a a is a good a good time scale in which to experiment with something um because it it, it is quite a commitment it's a to doing something commitment. every day and even if you just spend 10 minutes um it's that th there's a there's a kind of it, it impedes on your life, right? <laughs> Where you, yeah. you get to the end of the day, it's been a really hard day and it's nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night and you're like, shit, I need to do a poster for this thing. Otherwise I've failed or. Yeah. Well, um, well, there, well there was a, there was a party that I was at and it was a quarter to midnight because we used to, have, <laughs> we used to set the thing that it was midnight that we had to upload them by and I had, and I'd forgotten to do a poster <laughs> and I was sat there in this party, a couple of drinks down I thought, oh shit, I haven't done my poster. And I went and scurried off and got my laptop out and I was sat in the middle of this party making a really crappy poster to upload by midnight. So it, I think it, it does impede I, I, on your life, yeah. <laughs>